0: One of the trending stories that has caught public attention over the past few months has been Elon Musk being forced to buy Twitter. Musk had leaned in with some interest in purchasing Twitter for $44 billion, took some steps forward, and then at the midnight hour, seems as though he tried to withdraw. In his withdrawal from the purchase, there was a legal complication where Twitter was able to throw a lawsuit at Musk, which more or less appeared to convince him back towards the purchase of Twitter. So he purchased it for $44 billion. And now there's speculation as to whether or not Twitter will even survive, which makes it sound like a $44 billion bath, perhaps right down the drain. Recently, there was a story of a 30-year-old man who was heavily involved in cryptocurrency. He rode the wave to the top, and at one point, they said that his worth was $26 billion, with a B, dollars. Markets had been struggling, and so last Monday, his worth was approximated at a mere $16 billion. But by the end of this last week, He was declaring bankruptcy, and the value of his business was brought to zero. One news source said it was one of history's greatest ever destructions of wealth. And then, of course, there was the story this past week of the $2 billion lottery winner. Now, what do these stories make you ask questions about? It kind of brings questions to mind like, what would I do if I had to be in charge of all that money? How would I manage that money if it were under my control? How much of it would I save? How much would I spend? How much would I give away as a philanthropist? And yet those are the questions that cause us to miss the more important questions when we hear stories about those with lots of money. The more important questions are these. What should I do With the money that I am in charge of? How should I be managing the money that God has given to me? How much of this money should I save? How much of this money should I spend? And how much should I give? Well, this morning, we want to answer a question. The question is this How do you follow the Lord with your money in the area of giving? How do you follow the Lord with your money in the area of giving? Now, if you're a new Christian or if you're not a Christian, um, you may not have been taught about how to use your money in the area of giving. And so we're going to start with this passage in Mark, and then we will see seven total principles, seven biblical principles on giving. And we're going to call it grace giving. And the reason why we're going to call it grace giving will appear later on in the sermon. But the big idea that I want you to be able to walk away with from these seven principles is this. Biblical giving is the outworking of God's grace in your life. Biblical giving is the outworking of God's grace in your life. Okay, so we're in Mark, and for the last few weeks, we've slowed down in chapter 12. We're going to pick chapter 13 back up after the new year, just so you know where we're going with Mark. But we've been watching Jesus in, in chapter 12, and he's in the temple, the Jerusalem temple area. There have been some intense exchanges between him and the religious leaders, but in this particular paragraph, we see Jesus now gathering his disciples off to the side, and they're doing what we like to do when there's a crowd of people. He's people watching. Specifically, they are watching people walk through a section of the temple area called the treasury. In this area of the temple... Jewish history tells us that there are 13 boxes, or chests. And on top of each box is a funnel that leads down to the chest. So these chests are like offering plates. People can walk by them and they dropped their financial offerings into that funnel, and their coins would fall into that metal funnel, making noise and clinking all the way down until it hit the coins in the bottom of that chest. You'd be able to hear the noise of people's giving. Now, we know that there's nothing secretive about that. This kind of giving, it wasn't meant to be secretive. We give our checks and our giving, kind of secret, put it in the envelope, seal it up, If you lay it in the offering plate, you face it down so that the next person coming along doesn't have to see what you just put in there. Or if you're giving online, you're thankful that nobody is tracking you to see what's being given. But this particular offering, the way that they're giving here, it's not private at all. And you have to just kind of soak yourself in the culture as you're watching. You're watching people come with bags and drop bags of coins into these chests, People are coming along, putting their money into that box. And the text says at the end of verse 41 that many rich people are putting in large sums so your ears can hear and your eyes can see. In verse 42, Mark tells us, or Jesus tells us through this, that a poor widow comes along and puts in two small copper coins, So you're watching this with Jesus. You're watching people come along, as is the routine. You're hearing the amounts of money drop into the bottom of this chest. And then here comes a widow, perhaps an older widow, maybe shuffling along. We know that widows are treated as those who are without wealth. In the Old Testament, one of the ways that Israel was supposed to respond to the widows among them was to leave the corners of their fields with grain. And if the farmer forgot to pick up a sheaf of grain, he was to leave it there so that the widows and sojourners could have food to eat. And so associated with being a widow is poverty. You get the leftovers. And so here comes this woman up to this chest in the treasury, and it says that she drops in two small copper coins. You can see it. You can hear it. Maybe she reached into a coin purse, or maybe she's wearing a robe that had a a pocket sewn on to the outside of it, and she reaches her gnarly fingers into there and pulls out two copper coins. And now the text says in verse 42 that her two copper coins, in our ESV translation, it says they make about a penny. And scholars would say it's probably more than a penny. It's probably more like, in today's currency, a buck and a half, maybe two bucks. About enough money for you to go order a cheeseburger and fries off the value menu. And that was it. But when Jesus sees her he says something very encouraging. He says this in verse 43. He says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Okay. Seven Biblical Principles Concerning Giving. Seven Biblical Principles Concerning Giving. Number one is this. Jesus praises sacrificial giving. Jesus praises sacrificial giving. Now, how far will two coins go in our economy? How much purchasing power does that have? How long can that keep the lights on in this auditorium? In your mind, how many Bibles can two coins purchase? How many missions trips will that fund? How many staff salaries can that take care of? None. But Jesus is saying about this woman who comes up to the offering chest and drops in her two coins, he's saying when she puts in those two coins of hers, she is putting in more than all the others. Now, of course, The wealthy individuals who had come before her, they gave larger sums. They had more to give. They had larger incomes, which means larger offerings. And yet Jesus says that this woman, she gave more than all of those who came with bigger sacks of coins. And why does he say that? He says that because that's all she possibly could give that was it. Her piggy bank was empty. Her coin purse was done. Nothing's left. Now one can say, well, wait just a minute. Let's sort of reason this out. She gave two coins. Tomorrow, she might be able to work as a babysitter for a couple of hours and make that up. Maybe she could go to one of the farmers who needs some temporary help, and she could carry a few sheaves of grain into town for sale. She could make that up in just a few minutes because it was such a small wage. Now, on the other hand, those who came with the larger amounts of money, the rich people, it took years for them to make their wealth. So there is a little bit of a difference here, isn't there? And one can answer, yes, And also what you need to note here is that Jesus is not condemning the rich here. That's not the perspective. Some people, they're given talents, they're given responsibilities, they're given opportunities to make lots of money. Other people are given lots of money, they inherit lots of money. Those gifts that come to the offering box, Jesus is saying, those gifts were given out of an abundance of wealth that is had in the background. But this woman didn't have that. She doesn't have an abundance of wealth in the background from which to give these two coins. Her abundance of wealth is the two coins. Her two coins were everything to her. And she took those two coins, she took her abundance that she had, if you will, the text calls it her poverty, and she brings it to God and says, it's yours. I'm giving it all to you. And Jesus looks at her and praises her for the amount that she gave. She was all in. And Jesus is saying, I want you to see this, disciples. I want you to see a poor person, someone who has hardly any financial means. And what she gives in God's economy is amazingly high and more than even which we would see in our economy. Jesus praises sacrificial giving. Now, I think this is important for us on many different levels. Young people, you may not have been taught how to give. Or you might say, I only make a little bit of money. I'm making minimum wage at my job. And I hear the business meetings at church, and there's a need for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Whatever I give would be pointless. So what's the point in even giving? That's a very human perspective. God is saying, that's not the point. You stand in relationship with me and I want you to know I'm looking at your heart. You need to give. You might be in a situation where you've been going through bankruptcy. You don't have the income you used to. You get discouraged anytime you walk past those offering plates out there. You're just feeling like, I've got nothing to give. And you give something meager, something that feels, it's kind of paltry in in nature, and, and there it goes into the offering plate, and you think to yourself, well, that's not very much because that's not really helping the budget here at church. I remember when I was able to give more than that, but I just can't, and I feel discouraged. Or if your budget is squeezed due to a loss of job, or maybe you've made a decision to do without extra income, you're seeing a decreasing level of income, or you're seeing inflation go through the roof, and you're like, I gotta keep the lights on. God sees the amount you are giving from. And in that case, even the smallest of gifts can be much in his sight. Everyone's gift is significant, even the smallest, because God sees them as acts of worship. In God's eyes, it's not the amount that is given that is impressive. God knows the amount that you give from, and you don't have much to give from. If you don't have much to give from, know that God is pleased with sacrificial giving. Two coins from a widow, Jesus is saying, was worth more in his economy than what the wealthy were able to give. Know that Jesus is not looking at the amount that is given. He's looking at the sacrifice that's taking place. So point number one, Jesus praises sacrificial giving. Now, I want to move from Mark chapter 12, as we study this theme of giving, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Go ahead and take your Bible and turn there as we look at the remaining six principles of giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 What's interesting here in 2 Corinthians 8 is that Paul is talking to the church at Corinth who has taken on a need. Um, They've decided to join with other churches in helping the saints in Jerusalem. These saints in Jerusalem are going through a hard time, a famine, and, and they need some of the income. It's like, giving through the church to help this other church. And so Paul comes to this church at Corinth, and he brings this point up in chapter 8 about giving to the saints in Jerusalem. And he says here in verses 1 through 3, he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. That sounds like the widow, doesn't it? She gave according to her means. As I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. All right, so in these three verses, we see our second principle for giving. Second principle for giving is this. Grace giving is a sacrificial joy. It's a sacrificial joy here. All right, so Paul references these churches in Macedonia, and he makes note that they're not made up of wealthy individuals. Financially speaking, they are characterized as being extremely poor or extreme poverty. Again, That recalls to mind the characteristic of the widow. So their giving is definitely a sacrifice. They're giving out of their poverty. But notice in conjunction with their poverty, notice that their giving is not simply characterized by the amount they gave from. It's also characterized by the heart that they gave from. So going back to verse number two, he says, for in a severe test of affliction what were they characterized by? They were characterized by an abundance of joy. That's what you see. So sacrificial giving, yes, and now on the heart level, something very interesting is happening here. They're not coming to this opportunity to give and, and, and kind of going through it saying, man, this is hard they're coming to it saying, I want to be a part of this. This is a joyful thing that I can be involved in. And it's a sacrifice. Now, what's the relationship between sacrifice and joy? Well, sacrifice is never easy. Sacrifice is never cheap. Yet sacrifice is always moving in the direction of something of value. So, for example, we just celebrated Veterans Day, we say that veterans make a great sacrifice now what is their sacrifice for their sacrifice as they go into the service and give of their time for two years four years or for a career putting themselves in the way of danger is for something that they value as being greater than their service a veteran, somebody who goes into the military and serve, says, I'm going to this sacrifice because I value freedom even more. So it's a joy for me to be able to sacrifice because I have this joy of freedom that's here. And when Paul talks to the church in Corinth, He's reminding them that these Macedonians who were poor, yes, they went into a season of sacrifice where out of their extreme poverty they're giving, but notice their attitude. Their attitude is, this is worth it to be part of. We look at Jesus. Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the Joy that was set before him. There's the joy. He can see it out in front of him. What's the sacrifice? He endured the cross. So here's our Savior sacrificing for the joy that's out there in front of him. So when it comes to giving of my money to God, a Christian heart, and this, folks, if we're just being honest, this can be the struggle for us. A Christian heart ought to be moving in the direction of saying, I'm sacrificing personal comforts. I'm giving up what could be mine so that I can give to God's work. But I see it as a joyful part or as a joyful enterprise or as a joyful relationship to be involved in with God. I can be part of God's work. It's a shift in our thinking because normally we limit our joy to the things that will someday burn. You know what I mean? We limit our joy to the next possession that we can get. We limit our joy to that item that we can purchase. But if we see it from God's perspective, it's a joy to be invested in his work. And our hearts have to come along and say, okay, God, I think that I wrongfully have too much joy in the things that will burn and not enough joy in your work. And Paul is saying, here's an example of people who got it. The churches in Macedonia, they didn't have much to begin with. And so if they were going to be a part of something, they wanted to be a part of God's work. And for them, they gave out of the abundance of their joy. So know this, that when we give, we want our heart to be in the right place. That grace giving is a sacrificial joy to be part of God's work. Principle number three. Grace-giving is generous in nature. Verse 2, again, of chapter 8 says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul talks about this in Romans 8 with people who have gifts, and he says that those who give or those who can contribute should do so in generosity. Now, as we're talking about this grace-giving we need to be thinking that we are followers of Christ and one of the things that kind of came to mind is as you are writing out your check for giving to the church it would be really cool if on the back side of that check or there could be a watermark on that check with the person of Jesus so that as you're writing it you're thinking I want to see Jesus. Like, I want to see that this is part of following him, and I want to see his character, and I'm a Christ follower. And when you think about Jesus, one of the things that has to come to your mind is his generosity. The followers of Jesus, the crowds that came around Jesus, never walked away saying, He's miserly, He's stingy, He's tight fisted with His resources. When a need was present, Jesus moved towards the need. When people came to him with a need, he was the one who was constantly giving of himself, wearing himself out. And when it comes to giving, it's good for us to consider whether or not our giving reflects the character of Jesus who is generous in nature. Grace giving is generous in nature. Principle number four. Grace giving is an act that we seek to excel in. So move down to verse 7 in your Bible here. Paul is talking to the Corinthians and talking about their involvement in this, and he says, as you excel in everything, as you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So it's normal to want to excel in areas of life, and he talks about you should excel in your faith, so hopefully six months from now you're able to look back and see God has grown you in your faith. In these gifts that he's talking about, I believe the speech, knowledge that he's talking about is what he was referencing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12-14 and 14 with the gifts that God has given to the church. Seek to excel in these gifts that God has given to you. But above that, Paul is saying, we're talking about giving here. And this should be an act that you seek to excel in. You seek to excel in this act of grace, this act of kindness in which you're giving. See that you excel in this area. So as best as possible, as Christians, we should seek to manage our income so that we actually excel in giving. Principle number five. Grace giving is according to love. Grace-giving is according to love. Now, look at verse 8. Verse 8, Paul is kind of moving and transitioning with his argument here, his appeal to the Corinthians, and he says, I say this not as a command. What he's just talked about in reference to giving, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Okay, so grace giving is according to love. Now think about this for just a minute, where Paul is in his argument. The Apostle Paul, other than Jesus, probably knew the Old Testament better than anyone else. He's a master at using the Old Testament to back up his arguments. He will quote from Genesis to back up his arguments, he'll reference Abraham's life to talk about justification by faith. When it comes to redemption, there will be themes about Israel's uh, exodus from Egypt. When it comes to salvation, he will reference God's work in Pharaoh's heart. He'll often reference the law, even to back up his point. For example, in Ephesians 6, you remember where Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, do you remember what he used next to back up his argument? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He goes to the law, and he says, now, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The point is, Paul is very familiar and comfortable using the Old Testament to back up his arguments. So here's Paul, he's talking about giving. And notice what he says at the beginning of verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you in this. I'm not saying this as a command. What could have been his point is Paul could have said, okay, you need to know that you are under the Old Testament economy of tithes. He could have used the word tenths. He could have appealed to them at this level, but he doesn't. In fact, in all of Paul's writings, you'll never see him using the word tithe or tenth. In the New Testament, you see the writer of Hebrews mentioning Abraham and Melchizedek as a reference to who Melchizedek is, and he recalls that an offering was made there of a tenth Jesus talks to the Pharisees and says, hey, you do well, you're tithing, you're mint, you're cumin, and all this, and he kind of applauds them, maybe a little sarcastically saying, you're doing well. But other than that, the New Testament is silent about these terms, tithe, tithes, or tenth. Why is that? It's because we're not under that economy of law anymore. We're not under that economy of mandatory tithes. I was reading this morning in 2 Chronicles 31 where Hezekiah is sort of reforming the temple and they're bringing the tithes of their their animals and their sheep. And then they got to bring a tithe in of their grains and their honey and their wine and all of that. And there's tithes of this and tithes of that and everything is 10th, 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 10th. Bring it into the temple. And yet here... When Paul is taking the most time out of any of his arguments concerning giving, not once does he back it up with the Old Testament law of 10th. And the reason why is because we don't live under the law. Instead, Paul says, I'm not saying this as a commandment. This is about the sincerity of your love, which then puts us in a place where we see God is drilling past our external actions, and he is drilling into our hearts. He wants us to give out of love. Jesus has just talked about this in Mark chapter 12, where he says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And we as members come together in a church, we're covenant members, and we say, okay, this is the budget that we're taking on. And now we come to it and we say, we're going to give out of love to God and out of love to one another. One author says this, that love and gratitude to God for who he is and what he has done is the fountain out of which grace giving is to flow. So there it is. It's not out of this fountain of tithe and tents So you won't hear me talking about now you should give a tithe if you've come through our life at lakeshore class you hear about us talking about giving how do we give we give according to the grace that god has given to us so this is this fifth principle here grace giving is to be done according to love love for god and love for others principle number six grace giving is grounded on grace. So it's being done with love in mind, and now it's being done according to or grounded on grace. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Okay, so he's talking about giving, and then he uses this little three-letter word, for. And you know that's the ground that he just made his previous statement on, that you give according to grace. What is this ground that this giving according to grace, or love, I'm sorry, what is this ground that giving according to love is going to be built on for this reason? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's the reason, there's the ground that Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he was willing to become poor, think about the widow, so that you by his poverty, again think about the widow, might become rich. And here Paul is once again appealing to the gospel. He's appealing to our relationship with Christ, not the law. So who is Jesus here? He's the eternal son of God in heaven. To get right to the point, Paul says he was rich. He had everything without any limitations. All of creation is at his disposal. He's over all of creation. He's not confined to a human body. He's transcendent. He's above all of that. More privileged in every way. Yet, here's the eternal son of God in heaven. Yet, for your sake... Paul says, he became poor, so he takes on human flesh and descends. Jesus gave of himself, and he gave of himself with a recipient in mind, for your sake, for you. So you might be a non-Christian here, or you might be somebody who's seeking, and you're like, I hear what you're talking about with giving, And now I hear you talking about Jesus who was here and over all things, and in one sense we're using the term rich, and yet he became poor. This is the message of good news that all of us need. God is moving towards each one of us. He was the one who came to us. We sinned, we rebelled against him, we've gone our own way, and in that we deserve God's judgment. And there we are, standing in the place of guilt, deserving God's eternal wrath and judgment. And here is God who's saying, yet for your sake, I'm going to move towards you. For your sake, I who am rich am going to become poor. And this is what Jesus did. He came to earth. He became human for us. He lived a perfectly obedient life. He alone could stand before the Father and say, I I, I don't deserve any punishment. I am morally right in every way. And yet there's all of us over here in the dock who are guilty. And we say, we need that life. We need that life before the Father. And here's Jesus saying, I've lived that life and I've done it for you. And here's the grace. I'm going to offer my life as a gift to you. If you want to receive it in faith as a gift, it's yours to have, not to pay for. It's just yours to receive in faith. And Paul is saying, hey, look at that. Look at what Jesus did. For your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus humbled himself. He gave everything. And so if you're a non-Christian, the response for you would be, okay, I see my sin against God. I see Jesus who is standing there as the perfect man. I need to receive his life as a gift. And for the Christian, we say, yes, thank you, God, for doing that. And Paul says, now let that affect your financial giving. Let what Jesus has done on your behalf be the guiding tenor, be the guiding influence of your giving. Your financial giving is done with the picture of Jesus right in front of you. You've experienced the love and grace of Jesus, and now you say, okay, I want to continue, I want to be a follower of him, and I want my giving to reflect the giving nature of Jesus. So grace giving is based or anchored or grounded in grace. Principle number seven, grace giving comes from the heart. Grace giving comes from the heart. Now, this is in chapter 9. Paul continues the thought later in chapter 9. So for many of you, it's just right across the page. And you can look at verse 7, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, where Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And again, this just gets right to our heart here. I mean, it's, it's one thing to open your checkbook on Saturday night, and say, well, stink. It's that time again, where I got to tear out a check, stuff it in the envelope, walk in with a smile on my face, and drop it in the plate. And Paul is saying, whoa, that's not what a Christian gives like. There is to be no compulsion there nothing twisting your arm behind your back, not even reluctance, like I'm kind of standing back, not sure if I should do this at all. Paul's like, no, 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 that's not the attitude. What needs to be the attitude is a cheerful heart, and you're like, okay, so help me then. Help me if, to one degree or another, that's me on Saturday night writing out my check or going online to give to God, and my heart is reluctant, or I feel like I'm just under compulsion and feels like well it's the right thing to do so I just better do it what do I do you go focus on Jesus back to point six and you say okay here's my savior who is giving himself in grace all right God help me with my heart I have a love for money right now where I want to be tight-fisted and I I repent of that help me to give kindly here so this is the last characteristic that we give from the heart. Now, the million dollar question is lingering in your mind. And you're saying, but Nate, I make this much money. How much should I give then? And I can't tell you that. You take these principles from 2 Corinthians 8, from 2 Corinthians 9, from Mark chapter 12, and I think, that for many of us, I think that for many of us, we would see ourselves giving more. You take these principles and you ask God to do a work in your heart where you are generous and sacrificial and gracious and loving, where it's a gift from the heart. And when God's people come together, one of the acts that we do is we give. So I want to encourage you to do something this week. I want to encourage you to ask yourself, if you're married, even to sit down with your spouse and ask whether or not you are giving financially in a way that is in line with biblical grace giving. Or has your heart been in the wrong place? Talk about it. And in your talking, you might say, well, yeah, we see that we have a surplus regularly. What are we doing with that surplus? Are we treasuring that too wrongly? Are we giving with a priority? Are we coming to God and saying, I want to give. I don't want to hold back. Are you looking at ways in which you can be more and more a part of God's work? Make it a priority with your funds to give first and to give to God. Let me also share this. It's good to know the needs of your church. Um, Last Sunday night, Thomas gave us an update uh, briefly on the last quarter. And at the end of the service, he's just got one little bit to finish up with us. Um, The pastors at the beginning of this fiscal year proposed some bold moves to the deacons and to the congregation, which was passed along to you. One in which our budget would take on an increase of an additional $119,000 this year, which for a church our size is kind of a significant uptick. In short, it involves a new salary for a pastor. Now, I think I have a slide for you, and I just have to warn you, This slide is in the accounting world, and for some of you, as I was talking with somebody earlier, it might seem like trigonometry to you. And as I can see right now, perhaps some of the font is too small for you to read, especially if you're way in the back. Here's what happened. We took on an increased budget of 119,000. Part of that is for an additional pastoral position. The other part, if you kind of blend everything up together, you can look at other areas of the budget and say, this was up, this was down, this was an increase, and that was a, a decrease. Whatever. The other part is we want to be part of Luke Bilesma and church planting out in Salt Lake City. So we committed to at least two years of $38,000 per year support. So you take that salaried position of approximately eighty-one you take that 38 grand per year that we wanna be a part of with church planting, and you see that it's that uptick in the far left corner of 119,000. Now, as you look through some of this, I don't know if you can see it in that middle box there, there was a surplus from last year's giving of approximately 30,000. And that was rolled right back into the budget this year which helped carry some of that 119,000. There is an additional 89, and that's up in that top area with the blue uh, line around it from one of our financial guys. That would be a need that could become very real throughout this year. That's our pastoral salary position. And what this amounts to is when we propose this, we would need to see if we're gonna realize all of those costs of an additional $1,700 per week. That's in that top right-hand corner. Now, you know that a pastor has not come and is not absorbing that salary, and yet the budget was made with that in mind, so we wanna be very clear and transparent that the needs or the demands are not there for what the budget was set for, but it could happen. We're talking to a, a guy out in Northern Virginia, and who knows, He could. He could come sooner or later. We don't know. So the bottom line is, I'm just going to move towards the bottom line. Where are we to date? In good conscience, as our finance committee looks at things and, and says, okay, here are our expenses, here are our needs, here are our demands. We're not taking on this pastoral salary, so we don't need exactly what we budgeted right now. Right now, a best guess in good conscience is down at the bottom there where we're behind about 17, 17 17.3 or so. And so as we look towards December, we know that oftentimes folks give at the end of the year, can give additionally and give more. But it's good for you to know as part of your church membership, what are the needs, the real tangible needs right now? And this is pretty much where it is for us to keep going. We're about 17 behind from where we should be right now. So when you think about grace giving, that affects that because you see the need and you say, okay, hmm, I have what I have and I wanna give joyfully and I wanna give sacrificially and I wanna give with a good heart. I want us to be up to speed with where we are or where we should be in terms of the ministry here. So that's where things are. If you've got any questions or additional questions, I would encourage you to talk to the deacon. Some of this stuff is trigged to me. Doesn't make all sense in the world, so I'm trying to make the most sense out of it as possible with you guys. But I want you to see that 17-3 number. That's where we're at. You can take that slide down. That's part of who we are. There are other opportunities to give. Phil Hunt was here recently. And he talked about Central African Baptist University where you can give or sponsor a student there for 20 to $25 per month and help offset the costs of the gospel going forward in Africa. I received an email this morning from Larry Salisbury's contact in Myanmar. In Myanmar, just this last week, four ladies were baptized. And this is a persecuted, closed country where the gospel needs to go into that place, and it's not going to go in very openly, it's going to go in through back doors, and you can be part of that. There's Christian schools, there's seminaries, there are Christians next to you who have physical needs who can just be encouraged by a financial gift. And so we look at all of this and we say, okay God, I want to be using my money, not in a tight miserly way, I want to be able to give from the heart. I want to be able to give joyfully. And, and the Bible says no matter how much you give, whether it's little or much, God is looking at your heart. So let me just close with this thought our money has been given to us by God, God has given it to you to steward. You don't have $44 billion, you don't have $2 billion. What you have is what God has given to you. Those two coins were what the widow was given to by God. And we have a responsibility then and an opportunity to move forward with our money and give according to the grace that God has shown to us. We're grace givers. Let's pray.